the purpose of the plagues is to demonstrate to the entire region that Yahweh is the only true God in the heavens. He is the sole superpower on planet earth. He is the one you have to deal with, and he will judge and cast down any lesser power that seeks to usurp his supreme authority. Welcome to Into the Word with Paul Carter. I'm your host, Woody Woodland. God is the sole superpower on planet Earth. He is the one we all have to deal with and who we will all have to one day stand before to give an account for our lives. That was important for people in Pharaoh's day to know, and it's pretty important for people in our day to know as well. Here to tell us more about that is our Bible teacher at Into the Word, Pastor Paul Carter. Your is a lamp unto my feet. If you have your Bible with you, I'd love for you to open it now to Exodus chapter 9. We're currently in the middle of a section in the book of Exodus that runs from chapter 7, verse 8, through to chapter 11, verse 10, which has as its central theme the great power confrontation between God and Pharaoh. In chapter 8, we read about plagues 2 through 4, and here in chapter 9, we will encounter plagues 5 through 7. Hear now the word of the Lord, beginning at verse 1. Then the Lord said to Moses, Go into Pharaoh and say to him, Thus says the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, Let my people go, that they may serve me. For if you refuse to let them go and still hold them, behold, the hand of the Lord will fall with a very severe plague upon your livestock that are in the field, the horses, the donkeys, the camels, the herds, and the flocks. But the Lord will make a distinction between the livestock of Israel and the livestock of Egypt, so that nothing of all that belongs to the people of Israel shall die. And the Lord set a time, saying, Tomorrow the Lord will do this thing in the land. And the next day, the Lord did this thing. All the livestock of the Egyptians died, but not one of the livestock of the people of Israel died. And Pharaoh sent And behold, not one of the livestock of Israel was dead, but the heart of Pharaoh was hardened, and he did not let the people go. There's an obvious intensification in this fifth plague. The fourth plague was severely annoying, and it certainly ruined the quality of life that people were experiencing in Egypt. But this plague takes things to a whole new level. Domesticated animals were extremely valuable. In biblical times, a fact that we have a hard time wrapping our heads around in the modern industrial world. Thus, a blow like this would have been absolutely devastating to the economy and would have brought tremendous hardship upon the population as a whole. Once again, we are told that a clear distinction was being made with this plague. It affects only animals belonging to the Egyptians, a fact verified by Pharaoh's own investigation. This would have constituted a severe humiliation to the people as a whole, and obviously to Pharaoh in particular. We should also note that the Lord set a specific time for this plague to further demonstrate that this was no mere natural catastrophe. This was the hand of God. However, once again, we see that Pharaoh's heart was unyielding, and he did not let the people go. We pick up the story in verse 8. And the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, Take handfuls of soot from the kiln 
and let Moses throw them in the air in the sight of Pharaoh. It shall become fine dust over all the land of Egypt and become boils, breaking out in sores on man and beast throughout all the land of Egypt. So they took soot from the kiln and stood before Pharaoh. And Moses threw it in the air, and it became boils, breaking out in sores on man and beast. And the magicians could not stand before Moses because of the boils, for the boils came upon the magicians and upon all the Egyptians. But the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, and he did not listen to them as the Lord had spoken to Moses. This is the shortest of the plague narratives, and therefore certain details are assumed rather than explicitly stated. It is implied that the symbolic action took place in the sight of Pharaoh and his officials, and yet no such encounter is narrated. Regardless, the details seem fairly straightforward. Moses threw soot into the air, and it miraculously became a fine dust that covered the whole land and caused boils to break out on people and animals alike. These boils were obviously painful and debilitating in nature. Verse 11 actually says that the magicians could not stand before Moses because of the boils. Interestingly, this is the last mention of the magicians in the story. Obviously, having been unable to help Pharaoh in any way with respect to this plague and being completely debilitated by it themselves, they serve no further purpose in the narrative. Once again, we assume that this plague targeted the Egyptians and that the Israelites were exempt. Verse 11 says that it targeted all the Egyptians, but it it doesn't explicitly say that the Israelites were exempt, but that seems to be implied in all of the plague narratives generally. Here in verse 12, we have the first recorded instance of God acting sovereignly upon Pharaoh's heart. This would seem to imply that at this point, Pharaoh would have relented and allowed the Israelites to leave, but he is prevented from doing so by a work of the Lord upon his heart. The purpose, as we mentioned earlier, is to prolong this power encounter so that God could clearly and decisively indicate that Pharaoh, who up until this point was understood as the most powerful God in the region, was in fact merely a man and that Yahweh was the true power that all people everywhere needed to reckon with. The next two plague accounts are quite a bit longer than the six that have gone before. There is an increasing intensity and a corresponding increase in the amount of detail that we're being given. The narrative of the seventh plague begins in verse 13. Then the Lord said to Moses, Rise up early in the morning and present yourself before Pharaoh and say to him, Thus says the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, Let my people go, that they may serve me. For this time I will send all my plagues on you yourself and on your servants and your people, so that you may know that there is none like me in all the earth. For by now I could have put out my hand and struck you and your people with pestilence, and you would have been cut off from the earth. But for this purpose I have raised you up, to show you my power, so that my name may be proclaimed in all the earth. You are still exalting yourself against my people, and will not let them go. Behold, 
About this time tomorrow, I will cause very heavy hail to fall, such as never has been in Egypt from the day it was founded until now. Now, therefore, send, get your livestock and all that you have in the field into safe shelter. For every man and beast that is in the field and is not brought home will die when the hail falls on them. Then whoever feared the word of the Lord among the servants of Pharaoh hurried his slaves and his livestock into the houses. But whoever did not pay attention to the word of the Lord left his slaves and his livestock in the field. Let me just interrupt the narrative of this seventh plague in order to point out a couple of important details. First of all, verses 14 to 16 here seem to function as a sort of apologetic for the plagues as a whole, meaning that God is explaining the why behind these extraordinary events. The purpose of the plagues is to demonstrate to the entire region that Yahweh is the only true God in the heavens. He is the sole superpower on planet Earth. He is the one you have to deal with, and he will judge and cast down any lesser power that seeks to usurp his supreme authority. That's an important passage in terms of the theology of this book. It's important enough that it is picked up and quoted at length in the Apostle Paul's epistle to the Romans. There, Paul is making an argument for the absolute sovereignty of God. And he makes reference to this part of the Exodus narrative because it is here that God is first said to actively harden Pharaoh's heart. He says there in Romans 9, 17 to 18, For the scripture says to Pharaoh, For this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then, he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. Close quote. So, God strengthened Pharaoh. He positioned him as a regional superpower, and then he hardened Pharaoh, we saw that in verse 12, so as to prolong this power encounter, which had as its goal the complete and utter humiliation of Pharaoh and the clear and unambiguous demonstration of God's sole and incontestable sovereignty over all things. Now, Paul goes on immediately to indicate that there was no injustice on God's part for so doing, as in fact our reading of the story thus far would serve to confirm. Pharaoh will not be able to cry foul on Judgment Day. He was an arrogant, stubborn fool. But it is also clear that God manipulated Pharaoh as he saw fit for purposes related to his own glory and redemptive intent. Pastor Paul, I want to jump in here because I'm interested in this idea of God manipulating Pharaoh for his own redemptive purposes. That's an idea that pops up a couple of places in the Bible, if I'm not mistaken, and I'd love for you to unpack that for us a little. Is it true to say that God sometimes pushes a king or a leader this way or that as to direct the flow, as it were, of human history? Yeah, you're right. We do see that fairly often over the course of the biblical storyline. We see it here, obviously, but another place that comes immediately to mind would be in the story of Rehoboam, Solomon's son. So in 1 Kings 12, Solomon has died, and God had already decided to give 10 of the 12 tribes to this guy named Jeroboam, partly as a punishment for the fact that late in life, Solomon had become a practicing polytheist. He was 
worshiping God and a bunch of idols because of his wives. So Rehoboam, Solomon's son, was never going to end up as the king of all 12 tribes. God had already decided that, and God had already declared that. But to realize that, he appears to have influenced Rehoboam somehow to take some very bad advice from his childhood friends. The people of the north came to Rehoboam and said, We'll follow you if you promise to reduce the burden that your father Solomon laid on us. The wise old counselors that had worked for his father Solomon advised Rehoboam to take the deal. But his young friends that he'd grown up with advised him to turn the screws on the northerners even tighter. 1 Kings 12, 12 to 15 tells the story this way. So Jeroboam and all the people came to Rehoboam the third day, as the king said, Come to me again the third day. And the king answered the people harshly, and forsaking the counsel that the old men had given him, he spoke to them according to the counsel of the young men, saying, My father made your yoke heavy, but I will add to your yoke. My father disciplined you with whips, but I will discipline you with scorpions. So the king did not listen to the people, for it was a turn of affairs brought about by the Lord, that he might fulfill his word, which the Lord spoke by Ahijah the Shilonite to Jeroboam the son of Nebat. So in that story, God manipulated Rehoboam to bring about something God had already decided would take place. He had a geopolitical future in mind for the people of Israel, and he brought that about by making some really stupid counsel sound really wise to the young king Rehoboam. And there's another story like that, isn't there? Isn't there one about God sending a lying spirit to whisper some foolish nonsense into the ear of a king so that he'd go to war and then he'd eventually get killed? Yeah, that's in 1 Kings 22. God says, Who will entice Ahab that he may go up and fall at Ramoth-Gilead? Then a spirit came forward and stood before the Lord, saying, I will entice him. And the Lord said to him, By what means? And he said, I will go out and be a lying spirit in the mouth of all his prophets. And he said, You are to entice him, and you shall succeed. Go out and do so. Closed quote. So the spirit, or the angel, or whatever, went out and whispered nonsense in Ahab's ear, and he went to war, and he died in battle. He was hit by an arrow, shot at random. Yeah, but I'm guessing that wasn't <laughs> shot at random, was it? Yeah, exactly. The, the guy shooting it didn't aim it, but obviously God did because it hit Ahab between a hole in his armor and he died. And the direction of Israel's geopolitical history turned and went in a different direction as a result, just as the Lord had planned. So God regularly messes with the minds of kings and leaders to steer the ship of human history. Is that the idea? Pretty much. <laughs> Proverbs 21.1 says, The king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he will. Kings and queens, prime ministers, presidents, those are often the levers that God adjusts to steer human history toward the ends that he has in mind. But that doesn't mean that kings and presidents aren't morally responsible for their own actions. No, as we've said before, divine sovereignty and human responsibility are both true. They are presented as true, often side by side in the same biblical stories. So in our story, to bring things back around, Pharaoh is morally responsible for his own arrogant stubbornness. But God is simultaneously manipulating him 
to create the sort of display that will resonate throughout the entire region. Yeah, that is awesome. That's amazing. Let's jump back into the story where we left off here just before verse 22. We should also take a quick minute to anticipate a question related to a perceived inconsistency between verse 6 and verse 19. You might wonder why it is that in verse 19, there is a need for Moses to suggest moving the livestock into sheltered areas when we were just told in verse 6 that all the livestock of the Egyptians died. Aha! Internet critics will shout aloud. This proves that there are all manner of factual inconsistencies in the Bible. Actually, all it proves is that Hebrew and English are not the same language. In Hebrew, the word kol can mean all, but it can also mean all sorts of or from all over or all over the place. You have to use the context to decide which is which. Thus, all verse 6 is saying is that all sorts of animals from all over the place in Egypt died in the fifth plague. But obviously, there are still lots of animals left alive here in the seventh plague. So this apparent contradiction is not a contradiction, but is rather just a reminder that translation is a difficult task and words need to be defined in relation to their immediate context. In this case, verse 6 needs to be translated in relation to verse 19. When we do that, the supposed contradiction disappears. We carry on with the story in verse 22. Then the Lord said to Moses, Stretch out your hand toward heaven, so that there may be hail in all the land of Egypt on man and beast and every plant of the field in the land of Egypt. Then Moses stretched out his staff toward heaven, and the Lord sent thunder and hail and fire ran down to the earth. And the Lord rained hail upon the land of Egypt. There was hail and fire flashing continually in the midst of the hail, very heavy hail, such as had never been in all the land of Egypt since it became a nation. The hail struck down everything that was in the field in all the land of Egypt, both man and beast. The hail struck down every plant of the field and broke every tree of the field. Only in the land of Goshen, where the people of Israel were, was there no hail. Now, I won't say a great deal here about the nature of this hail. A quick YouTube search or Google search will reveal that modern hailstorms can produce hail up to one kilogram in weight. All we're being told here is that this was a particularly, an extremely, an unprecedented hailstorm, actually such as had been never seen in the land before. We can certainly imagine the devastation that this would create. Verse 27, Then Pharaoh sent and called Moses and Aaron and said to them, This time I have sinned. The Lord is in the right, and I and my people are in the wrong. Plead with the Lord, for there has been enough of God's thunder and hail. I will let you go, and you shall stay no longer. Moses said to him, As soon as I have gone out of the city, I will stretch out my hands to the Lord. The thunder will cease, and there will be no more hail, so that you may know that the earth is the Lord's. But as for you and your servants, I know that you do not yet fear the Lord God. The flax and the barley were struck down, for the barley was in the ear and the flax was in bud. But the wheat and the emmer were not struck down, for they are late in coming up. 
So Moses went out of the city from Pharaoh and stretched out his hands to the Lord. And the thunder and the hail ceased, and the rain no longer poured upon the earth. But when Pharaoh saw that the rain and the hail and the thunder had ceased, he sinned yet again and hardened his heart, he and his servants. So the heart of Pharaoh was hardened, and he did not let the people of Israel go, just as the Lord had spoken through Moses. As mentioned, the narrative of the seventh plague is much longer than that of any of the previous six. Some of that is due to the increasing severity, but some of that word count is used to cue us in to some of the developing complexities in the situation on the ground. For example, for the first time, it appears as though there is a third group emerging in this story. Up until this point, we've had the Egyptians on one hand and the Israelites on the other. But now, all of a sudden, we have another group. We have Egyptians who are starting to fear and respond to the word of the Lord. Verses 20 to 21 say, Then whoever feared the word of the Lord among the servants of Pharaoh hurried his slaves and his livestock into the houses. But whoever did not pay attention to the word of the Lord left his slaves and his livestock in the field. Okay, so that's a new group. Now we have Egyptians who do not fear the word of the Lord, Egyptians who do fear the word of the Lord, and the Israelites. That's a new situation. We also see a new development in the inner life of Pharaoh. In verse 27, he confesses to Moses that he is a sinner. That's obviously a significant step. Now, it is clear that this initial repentance is due entirely to the massive suffering that he is experiencing, but it is noteworthy nonetheless. However, it would have to be considered false repentance at the end of the day, because once the consequences are removed, the hardness and stubbornness returns. In New Testament terms, we might call this worldly grief, the worldly grief that leads to death. Paul talks about that in 2 Corinthians 7.10. He says, For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. Closed quote. Worldly grief is really just sorrow over the suffering that is associated with sin. It bemoans the cost of the bad decisions that have been made. It weeps over the consequences, but it doesn't really address the root idolatry beneath it all. It is not saving, and it is not lasting, as we see in this story. Pharaoh's heart is still hard, mostly of his own doing, but now here also due to God's providential intervention. And thus... He will not let the people go. This, of course, will lead to his own humiliation and downfall, and ultimately, beyond that, to the fear of the Lord descending upon every nation, every king, and every watching individual within the region. Thanks be to God. Pastor Paul, I find it interesting to watch the stages of Pharaoh's humiliation and spiritual reckoning in this story. You quoted an interesting verse there at the end of the program audio. You said, quoting from 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 10, For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death, end quote. Pharaoh's grief at this point in the story is not godly grief. It's not real repentance, and it does not lead to real faith. 
At this point, Pharaoh's grief is really just about the high cost he is paying for his ongoing disobedience and rebellion. Yeah, exactly right. Listen, everyone mourns the high cost of sin and stupidity. Sin is expensive. If you cheat on your wife and she finds out, you will probably lose everything. You'll lose your marriage. You'll lose your house. You'll probably lose your kids. And obviously, you're going to be very upset about that. But that isn't the same thing as mourning over your sin. That isn't the same thing as truly repenting. True repentance is a work of grace in the heart of a sinner, and it produces lasting humility, penitence, faith, and obedience moving forward. And as you say, Pharaoh isn't there yet at this point in the story. This is just worldly grief that produces death. And I have a feeling that we are going to see that very thing happening to Pharaoh in the weeks and the episodes ahead. As always, friends, if you are looking for more Bible teaching from Pastor Paul, you can find that over at the Into the Word website at intotheword.ca. Or you can download the Into the Word app at the iTunes Store or on Google Play. You can also connect with Pastor Paul and with other Bible readers on the Into the Word Facebook page. Just enter Into the Word into the search bar. And we'll see you right back here next Sunday morning as we continue our journey together through the whole counsel of God. See you then. Your word is a lamp unto my feet.